Blog Talk Radio. You know, every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. You know what I'm saying? Every time I speak, I want to shiver. You know, I don't want them to be like, they know what I'm going to say because it's polite. They know what I'm going to say. And even if I get in trouble, you know what I'm saying? That Ain't that what we're supposed to do? It's, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the, the, the brain that will change the world. to have personal responsibility, political accountability, and corporate culpability. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. We must eliminate poverty. I don't care what color the person a child I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, and welcome to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. We are the return of intelligent radio as we ensure the free flow of opinions and push the envelope on the questions America's afraid to ask in the mainstream media. Good morning to all the truth seekers out there. We have a couple of special guests on the line with us this morning, Attorney Mawali Davis, as well as Berea Lord returns with us. Thank you, Queen, for being with us, with me again. And Attorney Wallace Davis is your first time on with us, so thank you, King, for being with us as well. Uh, get this thing started. We're going to let each of you give a little short background so our two seekers understand exactly who we have on in reference to this morning's discussion question, which is simply, black prisoners, black prisoners, why do we forget about them? Black prisoners, why do we forget about them? This is your first time listening. We do our shows in the form of a question. The concept is if we ask the right questions, we'll start with uh, turning queen first. Maria, if you will, queen, say hello to the truth seekers and give a little bit of your background. Good morning, Montoya and um, everyone else. Thank you so much for inviting uh, me on this morning. My name is Maria Lloyd, as you said, and um, I'm the daughter of Mario Lloyd. Mario Lloyd is currently serving a life sentence in federal prison, um, first-time nonviolent drug offender. So I'm really happy to be on, and my family is on as well. We're really excited to be on to discuss this matter. Nah, thank you for being with us. Uh, Attorney Mawali Davis, if you will, King, thank you for being with us. Uh, first time on the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. So if you will, say hello to our truth seekers out there listening and let people know a little more about your background. As I've been sharing with people all week, I've been fortunate enough to get one of the top civil rights lawyer in our city here on the show. So I'm pretty excited about having you, King, but thanks for being with us. Hello, Mawali. Let me see if I got him. Uh, I'm sorry about that. 
brother. All right, I got you live now. Sorry about that. Go ahead, King. All right. I'm uh, again. I'm excited to be to be here this morning. I'm Mawali Davis. I'm a civil rights uh, attorney with the Davis Bozeman Law Firm. Been practicing nearly 20 years. Prior to that, I have been a part of the African Center Education Movement and involved in organizing around issues impacting um, Black folk, poor people, um, whether it's through education, through uh, police brutality, uh, mass incarceration, um, even now with the COVID-19. So if it's something that's impacting Black lives, uh, we try to organize in that space and and bring a um, Pan-African Black nationalist revolutionary perspective to do that work. So excited to be and ready to roll. No, absolutely. Again, thank you, King, for being with us again. This morning's discussion question, black prisoners, why do we forget about them? And we'll start the way we always do, which is a very simple start before we get to our actual first break. And it's basically the discussion question itself. Uh, when you hear it termed that way, Maria, you've done this with us before. So when you hear it termed black prisoners, why do we forget about them? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Obviously, this is a near and dear issue for you and your family, so it may be related to that. First initial thought without going too in-depth, um, what, what is the first thing that come to mind when you hear that particular question, if it makes sense? Um, shame. Shame is the first thing that comes to mind for me. I think that society has done a masterful job at making us ashamed of someone for going to prison um, and failing to convey the fact that black people in particular are targets for prison. It does, it's not that white people are less uh, criminals or not, or not, don't have a proclivity to become a criminal. It's just that we are more targeted. So the first thing that comes to mind for me is shame. No, absolutely. I, I think I would actually resonate that as well. Uh, Attorney Davis, if you will, King, again, just the initial thought of hearing the question worded, particularly that way, when you hear it that way, why do we forget them and being in your line of work? What's the first thing that comes to your mind, uh, you know, again, knowing that you're out there, keep trying to keep them in our memories, but what comes to your mind, if you will? I, I think enslavement. I think the my, my, my thought is that when, when, we, when we think of, of black prisoners, I think of, of slavery, enslavement, um, I think of the historical roots of controlling um, black folks, black bodies, um, cap- keeping us, holding us captives. And I, I just see this as a continuation and us turning a blind eye to it. Um, I think of Matulu Shakur, who is um, currently incarcerated, having done over 35 years, um, the the stepfather, godfather of uh, Tupac Shakur. So, um yeah, it's it's pain. I think a pain. No, absolutely. Uh, when you just uh, when you bring that name to the table, uh, brother, I'll be remiss not to highlight uh, the Black Man Lab. I've been fortunate enough to attend uh, that event. You know, when we could attend things live, right? Um, but anyway, right. Uh, if I could, throw, you know, just you know, put that out there when you bring up, you know, Matula Chukua, uh is very necessary because I was fortunate enough to meet uh, some of our political prisoners that have gotten out because they were able to, they were at the black man lab the event you again you when we were meeting live on mondays here in atlanta was fortunate enough to do that and i remember um not only being there but but realizing in a sense even your efforts in ensuring that not only do their are their names kept alive but putting in the work 
to try to even get some of them home. So I can only imagine, uh, you know, just what this topic even means to you having put in that work, um, if you will. First thing that comes to my mind, I'm going to go to a quick break, and we're going to get hot and heavy into this discussion this morning. Uh, but the first thing that comes to my mind, um, as I said, uh, Maria, to you, pretty that's the first word that comes to my mind, too, um, the shame. Um, this is an issue uh, specifically in our community when we say black prisoners within the African-American community. We know hardly no family has went untouched for the most part. And, and, and it may not even be a direct family member, but to a certain extent, um, there are de- definitely have families where we have members of our families who may have had, if you want to call it, running with the laws, right or wrong, whatever the case may be. Uh, but if anybody's had any family members spend time away, what's the thing they always say? The entire family goes to spend, you know, goes to prison, if you will. And so, um, thinking of that shame, it's not something that people typically within their families talk about or readily want to say. Hey, my dad went, or my brother went, or my cousin went, or my sister went. You don't want to openly run around talking about it. So it's understandable that sense. But as you said, Maria, the country has done a job of, in a sense, making it A-OK to almost forget about them and in being forgotten about, you, you, there are injustices that happen, but nobody typically fights that fight because of how the stigma that has been placed on the idea of being a criminal or a prisoner inside of the system. So. Um, those are things that come to my mind when I think of this question this morning. We would definitely open up the phone lines and things of that nature when we come back. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show again this morning's discussion question. Black prisoners, why do we forget them? We'll be right back. All I ask is that you think. Big Sis Media Group is a full-service design agency with tools available to help clients communicate with audiences through visual and digital media. So what exactly does that mean? You need graphic design? Call Big Sis Media. You need web design? Call Big Sis Media. You need audio or video production? Call Big Sis Media. You need a branded strategy for your business? Call Big Sis Media. Damn, they do everything, don't they? Nope, even better. They're professionals. Whatever service you need, they do a consultation, send over a contract with a deadline, and meet that deadline. A true one-stop shop for all your digital and media needs, all at an affordable price. What's their website and phone number? BigSysMediaGroup.com. 404-465-4348. Again, that's BigSysMediaGroup.com. Dot com. Call them at 404-465-4348. Within a few short decades after the end of the old Jim Crow, a new system emerged, and it emerged as a result of our racial anxieties, our tensions, dramatic shifts in the global economy that left uh, suddenly hundreds of thousands of people out of work, and our response to that crisis in urban areas, our response to the wave of joblessness that afflicted uh, 
segregated communities in Chicago and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Los Angeles and cities across America, our response to that crisis wasn't a wave of care, compassion, and concern. No, our response was to end the war on poverty and to declare the war on drugs. And by declaring a war, a literal war, on poor communities of color, we've managed to create this vast new system of racial and social control through a war on drugs and a get tough movement, uh, getting tough on the most vulnerable communities in our society. Um, we have recreated a caste-like system in America. Today, in major urban areas across the country, more than half of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. Once swept into the criminal justice system, and of course many are swept in at early ages, often before they're even old enough to vote, once swept in and branded a criminal or a felon, you are trapped for life. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Fontoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, Black Prisoners, why do we forget about them? Our special guest, Attorney Wally Davis, as well as Maria Lloyd, why do we forget about them as we listen to a cut from Michelle Alexander? You cannot do this discussion without bringing that queen to the table, uh, the author of A New Jim Crow. And she breaks down and gives us context, in a sense, for this morning's discussion. So, Maria, I'll kind of start with you, your thoughts, and hearing some of what uh, Michelle Alexander had to say, if you will, Queen. Yeah, I mean, of course, I excuse me, I love Michelle Alexander. She, um, her work, like you mentioned, The New Jim Crow, is, um, in my opinion, one of the most important books of the century. Um, given that, as uh, Attorney Davis mentioned earlier, with regard to his thoughts concerning this question, um, imprisonment, mass incarceration, the so-called war on drugs is absolutely a form of slavery. Um, and as Michelle mentioned in the clip that you just played, just this creation of this caste system in which black men in particular are revered as less than um, and troublemakers in society, it just has to come to an end. So I just adore Michelle. I'm so thankful for her work, and um, I agree with things that she said. Uh, absolutely. Attorney Davis, your thoughts in reference to that cut as well and anything you want to bring to the table in reference to your own work? Yeah, it's, she's on it. She What she did was really capture what we all have known in our spirit for so long, right? We we, we knew we would remember Jawanza Kanjufu, um, the countering conspiracy to destroy black boys, and he would talk about one in four, um, Hakimata Buti. So we're talking about this as being an ongoing um, dialogue about the incarceration, but what she did was really encapsulate it all and make it clear, crystal clear, the impact of it the way we uh, make decisions through public policy. The government makes these public policy decisions, and those decisions um, make it such that black, black men in particular, but black women as well, their lives are disposable. And, and that's what uh, is, I think, so deeply, deeply troubling is that 
Um, when when you look at, there's a book by Sharcy McIntyre. She's an ancestor now, but she wrote a book um, just called Criminalizing Free Blacks. And so even even back during our enslavement, free blacks were being criminalized. So the, so the criminalization of black people is not a new phenomenon. The, the war on drugs was this um, increase, this, this additional focus. Even if you look at um, slavery by another name, that's a, a, a piece around the, the forced convict labor. And so these are, these are all strategies that have been ongoing that have sought to control, um, captivate, um, and enslaved black bodies, and, and Michelle Alexander just brought it all to a head. I think that's what makes, you know, and I agree, this is one of the one of the most important books of the century. I think Sister Marie's right on it, because not every book captures the sentiment, and, it, and everyone is just nodding their head like, yeah, yeah, somebody finally got it. Somebody finally put all the pieces together for us to make it clear. She made it extremely clear. And the reality is, you know, a lot of us know of the book. I, I love that aspect being one of the most important books of the century. I would rally behind that sentiment as well, Maria. I want to go back to what you said prior to the break. And it's a lot of the things that we're talking about, we're, we're starting, you know, these have been talking points over the last decade. Um, and, and if you follow Michelle Alexander, you know, she's almost – be honest, she's almost exasperated with the lack of movement in reference to, you know, not just because it's her work, she just cares about this. And if you follow her history, she spent obviously hours and hours and decades talking about it, trying to move the needle. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think she's at a point where she doesn't feel like we've moved the needle. I think it goes all the way back. Opinion, and I want to hear both of your thoughts on this, but we'll start with you again, Maria. When we mentioned that word shame, I think it's the biggest reason why the needle hasn't moved to the degree that it's needed to move, in my opinion, because not only are we naturally shameful, as we just mentioned, you know, when it happens to somebody within our family and things of that nature, but it also allows us in getting along with our own lives, it, it doesn't allow us to pay attention to a Michelle Alexander when there is a call to action of what we out in the public might need to do. Like I can only imagine for you, Attorney Davis, you're probably in this line of work because of your concern, but I'm pretty sure you could speak to what you would love to see from the, if you will, the masses or the public and particularly African-Americans because this issue hits so close to home there are, I think there are aspects of that shame that play out and why we, in a sense, will not collectively address this issue head on. Any thoughts? I got some more thoughts, but I'm going to jump it off right there, Maria. But can you understand where I'm going with relating that even from an individual or a family aspect, that, that it plays a role in us not attaching and helping push along policy uh, uh, when we have somebody like a, we know Michelle Alexander giving this brilliant work and we don't own politically, individually, and things of that nature. What are your thoughts, Queen? 
Yeah, so, you know, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier with regard to the media. Um, I studied media at Clark Atlanta University, and so I'm very, very much aware of the impact that it has on our on our subconscious. Um, and so as a result, uh, the media, as you know, if we think about what Malcolm X said about the media, how, and of course, I am definitely paraphrasing here, but he basically said that the media will have you loving your enemy and basically hating the victim. And this is exactly what has occurred. This is what has transpired. The media has done such a masterful job at making us look at people who are incarcerated as automatically some sort, some sign of guilt, number one. Number two, someone who wreaks havoc on society. Um, and so there's more of that portrayal than there is of crooked cops and um, people who have been sentenced for crimes that they did not commit or uh, sentencing that is cruel and unjust. So for me, the media is really the epicenter of this entire uh, sentiment of shame and disregard and dismissal of black inmates because we have been taught and conditioned to believe that they're not worthy of the time that we should invest in making sure that they are still treated as human beings. You know, we are we are basically told that these people are no good to our society. They've committed a crime, so they need to do the time. And it's just really unfortunate because oftentimes the time just does not meet the crime, first of all, or it doesn't match the crime, rather. And secondly, uh, a lot of these people are, in fact, innocent. Yeah, a lot with that. Do the crime, do the time. And what I see mostly when it comes to that is we're not caring if that time does not fit the crime. I, I, I would consider that a number one issue when there are, based on the numbers, about 500,000 black fathers in jail. I kind of want to start going there. But if you will, Attorney Davis, again, doing this work, what type of sentiment could, in a sense, the collective add on to your work or do you have trouble getting our attention as a collective in reference to this issue? And again, I think it would be due to what Maria just talked about, how we have come to even see ourselves when it comes to entering the system. Any thoughts on that, King? Yeah, I I think, you know, largely we don't recognize that there's a war on black people. That's, that's, that's until we acknowledge there's a war on black people, then we're just going into this not understanding that the only way we get to free these brothers and sisters who have been unlawfully incarcerated, who've been given sentences that are much longer than their white counterparts for the same crime, all of that is baked into this system, right? And so I had a conversation years ago when I first came into the movement and a brother by the name of Odinga, he would he would give us these you know teachings. And he we I sat with him one day, and he asked me a question. I was a young I was a naval officer at the time. I was believing that you know this system could be reformed. And he asked me. He said, "Man, are, are our people suffering?" And without hesitation, I said, "Yes, our people are suffering." And then he said, "You know, so since our people are suffering, do we have a responsibility to relieve their suffering?" I automatically say yes. Then he says, if they're suffering under under a particular system, do we have a responsibility to change that system? And as I was getting ready to answer that question, he says, before you answer that, you understand that changing a system is revolutionary. 
I'm a young officer in the Navy. I go in every day, you know, salute the flag and all of that. And I had to say, yeah, then I have to be a revolutionary. And I think that's what we have to come to as a people is that this system is functioning in the way that it's supposed to function in incarcerating black people and warring against us to maintain control. And so we've got to say in order for us to get justice, we've got to change the system. We can't just keep tinkering around the edges of it. We've got to change the system. And that's what I think is the, is the challenge is that we think these are individual acts and wrongs against individual people. But, but Maria's dad, he got caught up in a system. You, you see what I'm saying? That the system is what is producing life sentences for nonviolent crime. That's crazy. That's crazy. But we just keep going along with the system. Matter of fact, bring that home, Maria. Uh, Attorney Davis mentions your father getting caught up. That obviously hits home for you, for how many of our brothers and sisters are still laboring away in prison for a nonviolent crime, if you will, or even, the, you know, if I'll throw this out here real quick, the new marijuana law, like, you know, they didn't, they didn't make any of the new stuff retroactive, so there's people sitting in jail or something that's not even a crime in some states now. So just kind of putting that in context, um, you know, for those out there listening, give some of your father's story. We're going to go heavy with that in the next hour, but just so we're not mentioning them without people understanding if they haven't seen in their advertising. Um, tell some of your father's story. This is the perfect time to, you know, start that process. Go ahead, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, again, my father's name is Mario Lloyd, and he has been in prison now for 31 years, a federal mm-hmm. prison, and um, he basically was sentenced to life as a first-time nonviolent uh, drug offender. And what's really peculiar about my father's case is that there was never any evidence. Um, so there was literally no evidence pinned on him whatsoever Um, Again, no violence whatsoever, no guns skated, nothing that uh, would warrant such a cruel and unusual sentence. And I spent some time last night reading the transcripts from the sentencing hearing, and I'm telling you, it it read like a a film, like like I was reading a script for some sort of crazy uh, thriller film in which somebody has been Uh, like the government has conspired against this individual to toss them in prison. And the reality is um, a lot of black women actually built their careers off of my father's case. Um, I interviewed my uncle who was a co-defendant in the case. And by the way, uh, my entire family basically was incarcerated. So my father was sentenced to life. My uncle, uh, my father's older brother was sentenced to 22 years. He served 19 my grandmother was sentenced. My aunt, my one and only aunt, was sentenced, as well as a distant cousin. And so I interviewed my uncle this week, really heavy interview. And um, he shared with me, he said that, you know, they put all of these conspiracies to distribute and conspiracies to launder and all this stuff on my father. And he said, you know, the conspiracy was really the government. He said the government essentially conspired to put them in prison, more specifically my father. And he said that when he and my father were incarcerated, people would ask, okay, so why did you get 22 years and your brother got life? And he said he, to this day, still cannot answer the question. He has no idea 
how the government was able to justify a life sentence for uh, the crimes that my father was accused of. And he just said, you know, basically that it, it, it literally was just a ploy, in his opinion, to build up some careers of some people in the city of Chicago. My, my family is from Inglewood, Chicago. And so um, he just believes that it was just a ploy to build their careers, especially and obviously on the back of our family. So that's the story of um, our, our father. And, again, my family is on the line. We have uh, my siblings, all of my living siblings, there's five of us, but one is deceased, and then also my father's grandchildren because his incarceration has now affected that generation as well. Now, that's tough to hear. we got about a minute and a half, if you will, Attorney Davis. Um, if you could even just bring some context of the idea of someone, quote, unquote, building a career, uh, you know, within the legal industry, you know, in this, in the manner that she speaks of, if you can give context, because it's, you know, somebody's first time hearing that, we might not be able to connect those dots. If you could just even let uh, let us yeah. imagine what that might look like um, from a legal standpoint. Just like I said, oh, quick, yeah. we, and we could, we, really? we've got about a minute, we've got about a minute, so I'll just get started with it, and we'll finish it after the break. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, no, re- really quickly, you know, the prosecutors, they um, – are rated on their convictions. They're rated on their trial wins. They're rated on the number of years. You know, those are all things that they have been hanging their hats on for years. And so there are a lot of prosecutors who want to rise to the level of judge. And so, you know, they go along with bringing cases they shouldn't bring, getting sentences longer than they should get. I mean, this is, I'm from the South side of Chicago with a neighborhood called Jeffrey Manor. So, you know, this is something that we live and experience before I ever went to law school. So uh, this is, it's, it's happening. And it's unfortunate that um, now black prosecutors have been put in those spaces. And our hope is that, you know, we're turning the tide with some of them um, being at least more progressive and representative of our community. No, absolutely. Thank you for that thought. We're going to go to another break and we'll hear another cut from Michelle Alexander as well. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. Well, all I ask is that you think if you're out there on the phone line and want to get in this morning, the number to get in is 646-787-1691. Again, that number is 646-787-1691. You will have to press 1 to let us know you want to speak. We'll be right back. All I ask is that you think. My name is Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. I am the owner and facilitator of the Mental Dialogue Community Support Group focused on practical solutions and the collective thinking of the black community. We do that one of two ways, every third Friday, 7 p.m. at Urban Grind, or Saturday mornings, the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Contact us at mentaldialogue.com or on Facebook at Mental Dialogue. All I ask is that you think important for us to shift our thinking about mass incarceration in our criminal justice system away from just thinking of it as a broken system that's in need of some reform or some tinkering into understanding uh, the, the scope and scale of this thing and its relationship uh, to our racial history and our racial present is because if we imagine, if we continue to delude ourselves that our criminal justice system is just a little bit broken and in need of a fix here and there, a policy reform here or there, if we do elude ourselves into thinking that, this system of control will continue to function well for a very, very long time. 
Just as in the days of slavery, we shouldn't have been talking about reforming slavery to make it a more humane system. We shouldn't be talking about reforming the system of mass incarceration. We should be talking about ending the system of mass incarceration as a whole. And we shouldn't be talking about reforming the war on drugs. We should be talking about ending the war on drugs. And so when we come to understand this system of mass incarceration is a system of racial and social control born of our divisive racial politics, born of our refusal to extend care, compassion, and concern, and our complete capitulation to punitiveness um, directed at those who are most in need of our concern. When we understand that this is what it's really about, it's, it's about our failure as a nation to truly overcome our nation's racial divisions and extend genuine care, compassion, and concern to each and every one of us, no matter who we are, where we're born, what color skin we live in, then, and only then, I believe, can we muster the courage and the determination to do the work that is necessary, which is not more tinkering, but it's to build a movement, a bottom-up, grassroots movement to end the system of mass incarceration as a whole. The reality is, is that our prison population quintupled within a few short decades for reasons that had relatively little to do with crime and crime rates. And so if we were to return to the rates of incarceration we had in the 1970s or the early 1980s before the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement began, we would have to release four out of five people who are in prison today. Four out of five. You know, a million people employed by the criminal justice system would lose their jobs. Private prison companies would be forced to watch their profits evaporate. This system is so deeply rooted now in our social, political, and economic structure that it's not going to just fade away with some tinkering. We have got, we have got to do the hard work of movement building. Welcome back to the Vincent Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, Black prisoners, why do we forget about them? Special guest, Maria Lord, as well as Attorney Wally Davis. Thank you both for being with us as we hear another cut from Michelle Alexander. She breaks this thing all the way down, and I wanted to get into some of the stuff she talked about here at the end because, again, there is constant talk of reforming prison reform. I've been a fan of it. I've advocated it. But in reality, she's saying, hey, that's not enough. And the reason I've been a fan of it is because, uh, in my opinion, this issue doesn't get put to the forefront of our political issues, if you will. We're in a, a political year, right? And so now everybody's crazy over politics, and there's this big push for a black agenda. And even over the years, often we quite say, Quite often we'll say there, there isn't even really a black agenda or do we even know what to ask for. But when I see it offered, typically this issue is rarely at the forefront. And I've always felt, and Maria knows this, that it should be at the forefront because this has devastating effects on the black family. And so it kind of relates to that idea of the attack that Attorney Davis kind of you know mentioned earlier, if you will. But getting into the politics of it, 
Um, for example, I was a fan of the First Step Act, so people, and, that's, and that was back in reform, and, and, and it's that tinkering that we're talking about. But I want to bring that stuff to the table. Um, Attorney Davis, I'll kind of let you jump in here, um, you know, just very, if you will, just the idea of what she's saying, the concept of ending it, and the work that it will require from us as a community in order to move past, quote-unquote, reform. Yeah, it's, it's you know, this morning I, I, I try to listen to, diff- every morning I'm walking or meditating or listening to different ancestors. I was listening to Kwame Ture this morning. He was talking about power. He was talking about, um, you know, white supremacy. And the, the issue with white supremacy is that white folk in this system have power to control hurt and harm us and it's the fact that we're out of power that allowed that to happen and so in order for us to have the power to protect ourselves from this kind of these kinds of attacks whether it's through the the system in terms of incarceration or in terms of police brutality it it requires us organizing the the masses of our people and so when you hear when you hear Michelle Alexander say community building, that's that's the work, right? We got to build community capacity to, you know, shut it down and change how the whole system functions. But it requires organizing. It requires dialogue like this. The fact that you know you're promoting critical thinking. Let's think, you know, because people just be like, nah. Man, they do something to me and mine. They they break into my car, and da, da, da. it's much bigger than that, right? Why are folks breaking in the car? Why are folks looting? Why are folks rioting? This is the language of the oppressor. This is language that's used for the folks who have, mm-hmm. you know. And so these are these are the the issues that we have to to build around. And how do we go about doing that door to door community building so that we say, yo. This this right here that's keeping us at each other, where we're going at each other, where we're feeling like the only way for us to come up is going at each other. Nah, we got to turn our sights on this system that has said we're going to give you all these little crumbs and y'all fight over it. You kill each other, kill each other over it, and then we're going to lock y'all up, whoever survives that. I mean, that's the that's the bag they got us in, right? And so that's that's why – we have to engage in community building. Um, I'm, I'm excited about the work. I'm on the board of the Southern Center for Human Rights. And so um, Tiffany Williams Roberts is a sister who went to Georgia State who has, you know, she is the community building council. You know, like we have to designate someone to help build community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, nah, that's, that's beautiful. And, and, and and so when I and every I mean how can we even disagree with anything that you're saying here, Attorney Davis? And, and, and let me add this aspect and get Maria's thoughts on it. And it's the idea of we're constantly in a, most of my life to a certain extent. There's always been those who thought of you know the community more than themselves, if you will, in this concept of building up community. And you know we don't want to continue facing some of the conditions in certain certain communities, you know, I always like to make it real clear to America, all of us ain't living in messed up neighborhoods, but to the, but you know, but for those of us who are concerned and, and, and about people who are, then the idea of building community is there. You can go in those communities and there you'll see people doing the work. Uh, I 
what you think about this, Maria, but I just want to add that even in building community, sometimes this issue of what's happening in the the system, especially the system of incarceration, it still seems to get left off to the table. The, you know, just to even make it political again, the Congressional Black Caucus buries this issue, in my opinion, now. All we do know is we always hear about the infamous 94 crime bill. Uh, at that, you know, we can see it in retrospect now. I don't blame them as much now, but we also we all understand now the, the effects of the 94 crime bill based on the narratives and things that were being pushed at the time. You know, maybe we bought into it as a community in ways that we shouldn't have. But you know, hindsight's 2020, so I don't want to go back and just place blame there. But in the Congressional Black Caucus kind of, in a sense, supporting that bill and some things that they wanted didn't get put, didn't get acted on. Like, you know, I want to be fair to them. Doing that, I don't see that same Congressional Black Caucus playing a role in putting this to the forefront now, if if that makes sense. Any thoughts on that, um, Maria? Again, that's just my opinion of it, but I want to hear your three cents on it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I would have to agree with you. I think um, overall the Congressional Black Caucus has really been relegated to just a symbolic body within the government. Um, I, I Personally, I'm not a fan of the Congressional Black Caucus, um, but, of course, if they were to show any sort of um, real efforts to evoke or promote change, um, positive change for that positively affects black people, of course, I would absolutely support them and, and help them in any way that I can. But from what I'm seeing coming from them and the issues that they tend to promote and highlight, um, it just doesn't necessarily resonate with the masses of black people. I think that they're really just uh, an elitist um, group. And I, again, I don't see how their efforts have actually um, helped the common black person. So I'm not really a fan of the Congressional Black Caucus as they are today. Yeah, I struggle with the same things. Um, um, For the callers out there, I see a couple callers out there. If you're trying to get in, make sure you are pressing one to let us know you want to speak. If you're just listening via the phone, no problem. If you want to get in on this morning's discussion, make sure you are pressing one. If you're online, the number to get in is 646 787-1691. Again, that's 646-787-1691. But, yeah, again, that's how I feel about the CBC, if you will, um, Attorney Davis. Again, but doing the work, what what effort would you like to see on that level? Obviously, you're kind of boots on the ground with it, right? You're you're, you're out here in the courts, fighting these cases, trying to bring these, quote, unquote, prisoners home and just make sure they're getting justice, whatever that means, whether innocent, whether they have done the crime and getting the right time. And I know that's the effort that you're making, uh, but what support would you like to see on the policy level or are you even attached to, you know, maybe some things that are trying to push through the system? Because at the end of the day, uh, the judicial system typically enforces the laws that we have. At the end of the day, um, some of us, if we're going to get this thing changed, we're going to need to get the Congress to actually change some of these laws, at least that's how I understand things. But if you could just kind of speak to what would you like to see for those politicians on that level? So um, I agree with Sister Maria in terms of we're moving in this this kind of elite space and with so much elitism. And, and the, way, the way I think where we're struggling 
is that we haven't built a grassroots movement to hold all elected officials accountable, including black ones, right? I mean, think about what Trump has done in the last three years. He's done whatever the hell he wanted to. Then think about what power Barack Obama had to issue certain executive orders to free certain prisoners, to free more folks. And I know that we celebrate, and it's obviously a vast difference in what he did in his presidency, but the way that these other folks have just, when they get power, they willed it. They do what they think is in the interest of their constituents and damn us. And we have yet to be able to hold our elected officials accountable in that same way because we lack the mass organization, not mobilization. We're going to come out to the march. We're going to come out to the rally. We're going to come out to the, to the mass gathering. Mm-hmm. But the continued organization to keep the pressure up to say, look, we, we, we deep. We, we demand that you do certain things. I've got a brother, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll finish with this. I've got a brother I've been trying to help um, out, of, out of prison. He, he, got a, 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 he got a 35-year sentence. And it's a it's an unlawful sentence because they sentenced him under recidivist. They said that he had done this previous times. This brother has been fighting this case in the in the law library um, for about six years. And when I got it, it was just over this summer. We started looking at it. I got a law student that we interned who's like, "Hey, Attorney Davis, I think I think this brother's right." And lo and behold, we researched it. We sent it over to the Southern Center for Human Rights. They agree. Here's a man that's sitting in prison on a 35-year-to-the-door case that it's an unlawful sentence. He wasn't a recidivist. But nobody, because the, the, the way it's just such a factory kind of way that they incarcerate, nobody was even looking at the sentence. So that's the work uh, that we have to engage in. No, absolutely. That's why we must remember when we ask the question, why do we forget about them? That's how somebody can sit on that type of sentence. Obviously, like you said, he did his own work, and now y'all are trying to help make sure that that, that that is corrected. But generally speaking, like you said, without that organization or putting this important or making this important or, you know, again, you know, we're not worrying about those that are locked away. We're leaving people in prison who absolutely should not be there. We're going to go to another break. If you want to get in, again, the number is 646-787-1691. You do have to press 1 to let us know you want to speak. Listen to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. Hey, where did you get that hat and T-shirt? I like that. Oh, I got this at moneymotivation.com. It's fresh, right? Yes, and I love the message on it, too. You are the hustle, huh? That's what the shirt says. I am the hustle. They embody the entrepreneurial spirit, and what I like the most, it's more than a brand. It's a lifestyle for those who want to put in the work and expect to have the final things in life. I also follow them on Instagram. Check this post out. If you believe money is the root of all evil, you're using it wrong? Or how about this one? Excuses made zero dollars an hour. I like those. What's their IG? At moneymotivation.co. But do they have any ladies' gear? 
Yes, you're going to love the clothing line they got for the ladies. Matter of fact, pull up their website, moneymotivation.com, and I'm going to get you a few things so we can both look like money. Everywhere I go, go. And everywhere I be, be. I don't even talk, talk. They still go with me. Because I look like money. Smell like money. Talk like money. Even walk like money. And then drugs came. I mean, when drugs came, it was like a gold rush. It was literally like a gold rush. Now, in the 80s, nobody understood the implications. But the 90s, they reaped havoc. I lost every man that was important to me, including my father, to the infestation of drugs or the war against them. So, yeah, in the world outside my community, Ronald Reagan was a hero. But in my backyard, he was a villain. I mean, how could Ronald Reagan possibly be a hero to us? How can Scarface possibly not? And so, like I said, in the 90s, you know, hip-hop painted this response. You know, there was this, this big response to all of the stuff that we were seeing in our environment. The murder, the mayhem, the prison, the death, the destruction. And rappers, you know, were speaking a language that we could relate to. I grew up you know, feeling like I was being raised by Lil Wayne, by Tupac, by, you know, Jay-Z. And in order to understand who I was as a man, I had to construct my own warped sense of masculinity because hip-hop was the language of a generation of men without fathers. So I'm finding my role models in drug dealers and gang members, piecing together what masculinity looks like. I mean, truthfully, in order to wear the badge of authentic masculinity, you had to be associated in some kind of way with this wayward lifestyle. You certainly needed it to get a record deal. And so what was happening was hip-hop was now being stigmatized as the equivalent of criminal. And guess what we did, unfortunately? We embraced that stigma. And why would we do that? Well, it's a classic psychological strategy. Michelle Alexander writes in her book, The New Jim Crow, that embracing your stigma is a political act, an act of defiance in a society that seeks to demean a group of people based on an unalterable trait. We found ourselves in a nation that saw us as criminals, so we embraced it. Besides, it was good marketing. I mean, in the 80s, hip-hop's target audience was black, male, and urban. By the 90s and 2000s, it had spread out to the suburbs, and the largest purchases of hip-hop were white suburban males. So when the music was indigenous to its own community, it was positive, socially aware, and anti-drug. When it broadened out and diversified to the suburbs, it embraced criminality, sold it for profit. Socially consciousness and positivity was out. Criminality and gangsterism was in. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, Black Prisoners, why do we forget about them? Our special guest attorney, Wally Davis, as well as Maria Lord, as we hear Lecrae in his TED Talk, a cut from his talk. And I wanted to play that cut because this, in my opinion, is the fallout of what we're talking about. There's so much to, the, to unpack in what he said there that gets into why this, in my opinion, should be a much bigger issue in putting together and building these communities, I think this issue needs to be high priority because of 
the example he gave and the example you're talking about with your family, Maria, losing so many men to the community, because as I always said, there is no culture or race around the world that could survive 15 to 30% of their men rotating in and out of the, the community. I don't, it, that, I think that is absolutely impossible. But Maria, I'll let you jump in again. Craig said a lot there. Whatever you want to jump in, please go quick. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it resonates um, with my family and I because so many um, people were taken away from the family, including our matriarch. Um, and then, you know, also I would like to kind of add or expound upon what he's saying with regard to that, just losing his father um, to the so-called war on drugs. When I interviewed my uncle, again, my uncle um, Charles Lloyd was a co-defendant in my father's case. When I interviewed him this week, one thing that he said that really touched me was that he believes that the health issues my grandmother endured were a direct result of her heartbreak over the fact that her sons had been railroaded in the court. So she wasn't even worried about herself. I mean, her time, you know, in comparison to theirs was minuscule. But when she got out, the only thing she talked about all the time, and my sister can attest to this, my older sister who's on the call, the only thing that she she would talk about was her boys, her sons that are locked up. And tragically, my grandmother had a very um, a life plagued with um, uh, ailments. So she had several heart attacks. And then, you know, finally she succumbed to all of those challenges literally a month before my Uncle Charles was released from prison after serving 19 wow. years. So we don't even talk about, again, how the entire family is incarcerated and how that affects us even from a physical standpoint, uh, I'm sorry, from a health um, aspect. It affects us. My grandmother died with a broken heart that her boys were railroaded in the courtroom. So this is, I mean, this issue, like you said, Montoya, we can go so far into the, so deep into the rabbit hole that we won't be able to come back up because it's so layered and so nuanced in terms of how this ripple effect, uh, you know, affects families. And, and again, generations, like I said, my, my nieces and my nephew are on the line as well. Um, and this has affected them significantly too. And for anybody out there listening, this second hour, because we wanted for people to it to resonate how this, for example, um, you know, let me say it now, free Mario now, um, uh, Mario Lloyd's situation, hearing it in detail. Uh, this is when we become when we become more than a talk show. Hearing it in detail from different generations, and some of y'all got these same stories. We don't talk about them. Like there are certain subject matters where my phone, and you've been on this show before, Maria, there are certain subject matters that my phone lines blow up. But there are a few that we sweep under the rug culturally, community, however you want to put it, that speaking to it is an issue. The shame overrides our action. And, and this resonates and hits home so much that it secretly, in my opinion, kills us. It, 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 
you know, like we literally have political narrative bar- bat- battles over, well, I was able to make it without my daddy. Why can't you? Like we literally have those battles and let the system get away scot-free with destroying our families. I sincerely feel that way. I don't I know we don't have you for a lot longer, Attorney Davis, but just your thoughts on this thing, how much it creeps and destroys families, and we are, we don't talk mass incarceration daily. We talk about every other political narrative aside from that. Or when it comes up, we just battle on, if they did it, they should have did the crime. Like, it's literally all we do, in my opinion. Your thoughts, King? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, so, it's so real. It's so real, you know, because one of the things that – that we tend to do is reduce this to just numbers um, and not the loved ones, not the direct impact that it has on, on lives. These are human beings with, with dreams and goals and, and talents and gifts and, 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 and abilities to contribute to their family. You know, just, man, your daddy making you breakfast in the morning can change your life. Right, you're 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 coming home to your 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 grandfather, your uncle, your grandma can mean all the difference in the world, and so we can't we can't ever gloss over the the human toll, and that's the piece that that's so deeply deeply troubling about this, and, and when we look at police brutality and what they're doing, we think you know like that's what gets all of the attention. But it's only a manifestation of the system. If if you have a system committed to corralling, arresting, prosecuting at a greater rate black and brown bodies, then as a a byproduct, you're going to abuse some of them on the way. So what, what happens out in the street, what's being caught on film, is just a byproduct of the system of mass incarceration. But people don't make the connection. And so these stories, and that's why these, these stories have to be told, um, and I'm so thankful for the Lloyd family being on the line and sharing their story. And it, it makes me emotional. It makes me emotional because, you know, here's a whole family that has had to endure this, and they can't get support. They can't get people, you know, to rally for for his release, you know, I mean, a life, 19 years, 20 years, and, and these rascals that, that are in the, that are in the White House, that are, that are all over the country, they rob us every day, they committing crimes every day, and they get nothing, that's why the system, you know, it, we've got to, this system has to be dealt with. And so um, I hope that um, I'm able to connect with the Lloyd family. Obviously, we got these Chicago connections, but we also have this desire to fight for justice together. I hope I'm able to connect with you, Sister Maria, and your family and um, do whatever we can to be of support um, and to help share um, what has happened and what's continuing to happen. And I just uh, am thankful I've been able to be on with you all this, in this first hour. 
No, I appreciate you. If it's okay, I'm just going to go ahead and give her your number, and y'all can figure Absolutely. out whether anything makes sense in the future. Now, thank you so Absolutely. much. I know you got to go, so I'm not going to hold you up. If you want to put out anything for, for the public consumption, um, share it real quickly before you go because I know you got to go. Yeah, um, you can reach our office. Uh, we don't do criminal defense or appeals work. We just do pro bono criminal defense. So all our work is then is civil rights and personal injury, and that allows us to pick cases that we're able to help on. But you can call us at 404-244-2004. You can follow us at Davis Bozeman Law or on Twitter, Mawali um, um, M. Davis, IG Mawali Mel Davis. So um, my love and, and heart goes out to the Lloyd family and just, you know, praying for you all. Um but we're willing to work because, you know, we've been doing a lot of praying. we got to do a lot of working, too. So, uh, Sister Maria, um, number love for you. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to connecting with you. Okay. Thank you, Brother McCoy. Uh, thank you, you, Attorney Davis. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. Uh, we are at the top of the hour, so we got to take care of our sponsors, Square Business Entertainment. I want to shout out Joe Bleas. He's been on the show in the past few weeks, this artist. Has hit 50,000 streams, so thank y'all if y'all have been supportive of this um, Joe Bleeze first, well, I should say first album release, but recent album release, Bet On Myself, is the start of it all. So we're going to play a little bit of that. When we come back, we're going to open up the phone lines to Muriel's family. Um, Queen, you're going to take over the show. We're going to have some dialogue so that people can hear the ultimate impact to this question. Black prisoners, why do we forget about them? We'll be right back. All I ask is that you think. All day long. All I see is everybody perfect when I'm scrolling through my phone. Seems like all they want. Just a bunch of bragging people acting like they get it, but they don't. It's true. What am I supposed to do? I feel like I'm overdue. Worked a couple lifetimes. I feel like I'm over two. Feel like I got more to do. I know I ain't done yet. Handle what you supposed to do. Gotta teach my son. It's a blessing in the sunrise. Wake up and return that. I just hope that you can learn that before the sun sets. Cause when the morning comes. training if you're speaking the language all day long 
All I see is everybody perfect when I'm scrolling through my phone. The world's gonna find out exactly who we are. Talk show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, aka Black Socrates. We play a slight tribute to Fortune Loss of Chadwick Bozeman. Put it out there. It's all quote on social media that I just want to share with everybody. It just makes you think. I'm a sister, former guest, Ashley Alfred Johnson. She says, How do we tell all the little black boys that Black Panther is dead? So just wanted to highlight that and play a quick tribute to that, brother. Getting back to this morning's discussion question. Black prisoners, why do we forget about them? Our special guest, second hour, Maria Lloyd. Thank you, Queen, again for being with us. Again, I want to kind of open this hour up for you and your family. Uh, for anybody out there, that if anything we've been saying makes sense for the last hour, again, I believe this should be a high-priority issue as a community, politically, personally, economically, however you want to look at it. Again, I'm pressing it, so it's something I've always wanted to discuss. So I'll say if anything we're saying resonates and you want to get involved, we're going to give you that opportunity as we listen to the Lord family tell us more of their story and what, as we say, when one person is incarcerated, typically it is their entire family. We're going to hear that firsthand. Again, Queen, thank you for even the opportunity to even do this. Um, And I got to um, Teresa lined up to come on if you want to start with her, but I'll let you kind of break it in if you will, and we'll just kind of go through and let each family member you know, give some piece of their story in reference to getting um, what I hope I will be our efforts to finally get him, Mario Lord, released. Thank you, Queen. Go ahead. Thank you, Montoya. So, yes, uh, what I would like to do is just start off by having uh, my relatives introduce themselves in order of uh, birth. So, like you mentioned, Teresa is my father's firstborn. She was 11 years old when he was incarcerated. So, sis, if you don't mind just introducing yourself, and then we'll go in chronological order and take it from there. Okay. My name is Teresa Wally. I'm Mario Lloyd's oldest child. And also I want to speak on behalf of my brother, Mario Lloyd, Jr., who is now deceased. Uh, Absolutely. I got, um, is Marcel next? Am I right on that? Yes, that's correct, Marcel's next. Uh, all right, Marcel, you're live on live on the air. Go ahead. Yes, uh, I'm Marcel Lloyd. I'm the middle child or youngest son. Right, absolutely. And, uh, all right, let's go with oh, – I'm sorry, go ahead, Queen. So, sorry, Montoya. And then I was just going to say I'm the fourth child. I come after Marcel, and then uh, after me is uh, the baby girl, Marielle. All right, let me get her – pulled up as well. Working the board, y'all. Y'all work with me. All right. 
Okay, here we go. Maria, you're live on the air. Go ahead, Queen. Hi, good morning. My name is Marielle Lloyd, and I am Mario Lloyd's youngest child. All right. And, and we, we also we have uh, my dad's grandchildren oh. on. Okay, uh, absolutely. So, I got uh, Stacy. I'm break- oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. My apologies, Montoya. Go okay. ahead. All right, I got Stacy live on the air. Hi, um, I'm Stacy Eagle. I'm Mario's Lloyd, oldest grandchild. All right, Stacey, I think we may have a bad connection, so if you will, Queen, just call right back in and see if we can get a better um, connection with you, if you will. All right, let me see if I can get Pasha. I got Pasha pulled up live on the air. Go ahead, Pasha. Uh, Pasha Martin. Uh, His other grandchild. Okay, and then I think the last one is Little Mario the Third. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, let's see here. Let me get yes. Mario pulled up. Mm-hmm. Hold on one second, Mario. Okay, um, and we have a we have a. Number. I'm not sure if my. I'm not sure if uh, the youngest grandchild is on, but uh, we, he, my father, does have one more grandchild, uh, Mariah Lloyd. I, I don't know if she's on or not, but she's the youngest. Okay. Yeah, right now I don't think I see little Mario the Third's info, so I'm sorry about okay. that. Uh, but if you yeah, no, yeah, okay. I know so we got right now we got I got all of them live. Um so yeah, I'll kinda of, in a sense, you know, let's walk anybody out there listening through the impact of this on your family, Maria. So I'll kinda of let you navigate in a sense who you wanna to talk to and based on who I have live on the air right now. So um if you will, Queen again, you could um you know, you you're you know, his daughter. So if you want to even start with your own story or whatever, however you want to do it, but I just want to let people hear what this is like if they are not, if, you know, if they haven't been through this or experienced this, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And, again, thank you um, for this opportunity, Montoya. What I would like to do is have my sister, because she was, um, you know, pretty – she was all a preteen, basically, when our father was incarcerated. So, Teresa, if you would briefly kind of explain – what kind of person dad was as a father um, from your from your memories of being with him, and then we'll just kick it off from there. Okay, thank you, Maria, and thanks for having us this morning. Um, my dad, um, to sum it up, he is what I and most people will consider an alpha male uh, in a black home, in a black community. He not only wanted to make sure his family was okay. He liked that uh he liked the sense of everybody around him was okay. So he was he was all he was always that person, that leader in the community wherever he wherever he at. He he stood out in that sense of the go to person. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Teresa. Um, Marcel, I would like for you to chime in as well, especially being his only living son. If you would, please um, also share your thoughts about our father. Well, um, our father was definitely a leader in the community. Um, While I was growing up, you know, people would always uh, talk to me and they would tell me, you know, just tell your dad that I took care of you. So, and that matter, I believe, um, 
he was a, um, a a leader. A lot of people looked up to him in the community where I grew up in. So. Okay. And what I would like to do now, family, is transition into how his incarceration has affected us. Um, so I would like to start with Stacey. Um, my, so my nieces and, and my nephew, they have a very close relationship with our father despite his incarceration. Our family is really tight-knit. And oftentimes when we go visit him, um, the grandchildren will take over the visit. <laughs> so we, we don't even really get an opportunity to talk to them as much because they love their granddad. And so I would love for Stacy to kick off and just share. Um, Stacy, if you would, just tell the audience about uh, your granddad as you know him because you've only known him behind bars. So what, what would you like the audience to know about your grandfather? Um, I would like the audience to know um, the visits are, like you said, we do take over, you know. The visits are really nice, um, but it's sad seeing him in there like that, you know. Um, I didn't want to go into too depth and go into too deep with it, but one of the visits, we it was a hard time for us to get in, and we ended up having to talk to uh, him through a video chat. And, you know, I kind of broke down and cried. Um, that was really sad for me. And I already have a dad that's incarcerated, so... Um, you know, both of my main male figures are locked up, so it's a pretty sad situation. Tasha, would you also chime in and share with the audience what you would like for them to know about your dad, uh, your grandfather's incarceration? Um, he's a nice person, very caring, um, loving person. Every time when I visit, I always, you know, get to have that time that I could with him. But it was always sad when it was time to go, so. And Stacey and Patrick, please tell the audience your age. 16. Um, And I'm 20. Okay. So, um, as you all know, or maybe not, I don't know if you mentioned this, but our father has been in prison for 31 years. So literally the only memories that his grandchildren have of him are him being behind bars. I would like to now um, transition and talk more about that, um, just the experience of visiting a loved one, especially your father, behind bars. One story that, excuse me, really chokes me up oftentimes is a visit that my sister and I, uh, Teresa, had with him in which we, so here's something that people may not know. First of all, when you go visit an incarcerated loved one, you are almost treated as if you're the inmate. Um, the guards are very cold. They're rude. Um, there have been oftentimes where guards are engaging in some sort of verbal exchange with visitors over, you know, the, the smallest things. You wouldn't even imagine what they would what would trigger them to get fired up or riled up with visitors. Um, so when you go into there, it's already an atmosphere that is unwelcoming, and it, it feels very uncomfortable. Once you get through that process and you actually get into the visiting room, of course, you are closely watched. Um, but then when it's time for you to depart your incarcerated loved one, that is probably one of the most heartbreaking things that you can experience or witness because they literally have all of the inmates separate from the visitors and line up as if they are aboarding a slave ship. 
And so, Teresa, I would like for you to share with the audience that, that moment that I'm speaking of. I know you know about it because we, we've cried about it oftentimes, but would you just quickly share with the audience that experience in which when we lined up at the door and you and I started crying? Yes, Maria, thank you. Um, uh, just going back to that, it's just like, oh, man, uh, bring up so many so many memories of situations like that. So at the end of a visit, uh, inmates go to one side of the room, visitors go to another side of the room, everybody's saying their last goodbyes, anybody ever visit a, uh, any kind of prison, kind of the same thing. And my dad was yelling, he loved us, and, and we just got extremely emotional, and it just never gets old. 31 years is still like the very first time you ever visit him being incarcerated. It never, the goodbye and have to leave him there, it never gets old. And unfortunately, Maria and myself, we didn't have tissues, we didn't have anything uh, we was like one of the last people because they do it um, whomever first to leave, whoever was prepared to leave first. And we was one of the last people that got up to the side where you exit out. And the guards let us through first because we had everybody sobbing, kids, everything. And it's just a, it's just a sad thing. It's, it's very quiet when you're waiting and you're just looking off at your loved ones. And it's just you have to leave them there time and time again, 31 years, nonviolent uh, offender. We, you know, we have to leave them there, and it's, it, it never gets old. It's, it hurts every single time. That is absolutely true. And, and Mario, you were only an infant when our father went to prison. Um, to be more specific, I think you were about three or four months old. Would you please share with the audience how your life has been uh, with your only memories of dad being behind bars? Yes. Yeah, so um, since I was an infant, it's hard. it was hard for me to just develop a relationship with him since he was behind bars, like, majority of my life. So um, just trying to have that father figure and, like, have him in my life, even though, you know, he may not be out here physically with me, but just trying to build that rapport and that relationship up. Um, as an adult, I've, like, made it a point to do that and to change it because I know how much it has affected me um, just being a fatherless child and just how it's affected me in relationships and just all all different types of ways. So um, that's pretty much, like, my experience has been just definitely painful because I know how much it affects me. Even the older I get, I realize how much it affects uh, my relationships and, you know, me personally. Can I ask a quick question okay. of you, especially with that being your experience? Again, like you said, you were so so young. Um, can you even recall, I don't know if you've been asked this before, but can you even recall, like, trying to make sense of it? Because I could, I could only imagine, you know, as a kid, everybody else, you know, the parents are home. You know what I mean? They're, this is not their situation to, you know, maybe, you know, to a certain extent. And so for you to have to develop a relationship in this manner, can you recall it when it started to make sense to you? Like what age did it kind of you figure out, okay, this is what this is? I don't know. I'm assuming there was confusion considering it was it's a, it's a, such a – 
in a crazy way to have to build a relationship or rapport, as you said. Absolutely. Um, so initially, my mother um, said that, told me that he was in the military. So not until I was about 10 did I even know where he was, really. So, um, and that kind of came out like it was not, I wasn't supposed to know that he was in prison. I was supposed to still think that he was in the military, but a, a family um, a family member told me. So um, that was hurtful to just know that I was lied to for so many years. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, it definitely, um, I think around 10 is when I really kind of was like, okay, like, you know, he's not coming home, at least right now. So I can't see him, you know, he can't be out here with me. So I have to figure it out. Um but that was even a struggle because I was so young. But as I said, I think around 18, really, really, okay, so 10 is when I realized, like, okay, he, this is the real situation. And then at 18, I was like, let me make it a point to develop this relationship as best as I can. No, nah, that's big. Um, Maria, if I could, I want to peel back something she said, and, and the whole family, I'll kind of jump out after this. But I, But what the example she just gave, that's a story I've heard. I haven't, I've been, I've, I've had an uncle, you know, do a little state time and things of that nature, but I would always visit as soon as he got out and try to help there. So I haven't been through the experience that y'all are talking about visiting a, a federal prison, definitely had friends, you know, go through that scenario and maintain relationships, but I never was on the visiting list, if you will. Uh, but when I hear her explain, you know, for 10 years, she was told he was away in the military. Like these are common practices based on that shame you started out with, right? With that concept of shame that you talked about, Maria. And so I don't know the answer to how you handle it for our children, but I still it still resonates for me that the, the fact that we're handling it in that manner. And here she tells us it, it was hurtful for her not to know that I, that I had been lied to when she finally found out, right? And so when I hear that, it, it still delves into how we personally see this thing is how we let it go along in the same manner. At least and that's kind of how I process it, process all of that. Mm-hmm. So just any thoughts and peeling back, you know, how it was for her to be that child who was told away in the military. That's a story that happens all the time because of our own shame mm-hmm. with these type of situations. But if you can, if y'all can, if any of y'all could speak to that, you know, even for her, that was her, her lived experience. She's sharing it with us right here live on air. Yeah, you know what? Honestly, I I would like to share a quick story. I hope my my niece doesn't mind, but just to really show and 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 reveal to the audience how deep the shame goes and how it it you know it goes across generations. So I was having a conversation with my niece Pasha, the 16 year old, and she ran across an old image of she and her grandfather, my father. She she was probably about three years old, and she ran across the picture and she showed it to me we were facetiming each other and she said well you know i i want to put it out into the living room but like when people come over and they see the picture like they may ask like why is he wearing that outfit and that stunned me in a way that i i couldn't even i literally had to like choke back you know hold back tears because i was like wow you know and that that is the shame that I held for many years when I was in elementary school, you would get the little emergency. Of course, they probably don't do this anymore, but they would give children the little emergency contact form, right? And I would sit there and stare at the form. I would always be the last 
kid to turn in my emergency form because I'm like, what do I put for my dad? Like, he's not dead, you know, he's alive, but I don't know what mm. to put on this form. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until I got into therapy that she revealed to me that was a form of trauma. She said, you know, that's a traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. You're a little kid trying to process a very heavy situation. And oftentimes I would just put the prison address, but I didn't know the phone number. You know, I can't, I can't, uh, nobody can call dad. Like he calls mm-hmm. us. And so, you know, with that being said, um, uh, it, it, the shame runs really deep. It's heavy. It's real heavy. And even though mass incarceration has unfortunately become a common thing in our in our community in particular, there is still shame there. As we can see, here it is two generations later, my niece, is she was ashamed in some ways, not necessarily of her grandfather. They loved their grandfather. But she was ashamed of the fact that her grandfather is in prison, and what is what does that look or sound like if somebody sees his outfit in the picture that she's in with him? So, I mean, it's a it's it's a real thing. It is. It's real. For any of the callers out there, that if you're just, if you're trying to give us your three cents or want to ask a question, we'll open it up to you. We see you on the line. If you're just listening, no problem. But for the callers that are on the phone line right now, if you are trying to get your three cents in this morning, you do need to press one and I'll try to get you in on this discussion. But all of the family members, all of you that are on, just kind of jump in where you fit in as we're having this discussion. We do have a break coming up here in a second, but before we go to that break, again, any of you, because for me, this is personally resonating just to hear for your family what it is like to have a family member, you know, behind bars, you know, in a sense for this long. And if I could even throw this out, Maria, because, you know, you and I talked about this um, um, like you said in the last hour, that this was clearly, in a sense, a railroading, if you will, to even receive a life sentence. But the reality is, even to even bring Obama back up from the standpoint of, uh, you know, at the time when they were able to get Eric Holder's attention to the extent that, you know, we had Obama be the first sitting president to visit a, you know, a federal prison in however many years it was. And so there was hope at that time that there would be some movement in this area when we go back to, you know, um, Attorney Davis talking about when you have that power, whether you relegate it or not. And so there was this hope that you would see a lot of black fathers come home because they say, here are the qualifications for how we're going to commute some of these sentences. Your father met the qualifications, but he didn't get to come home. Like, that's just keeping it real, and that has to be extremely hurtful, not only for your family, but many of your families, and for somebody like me who just has all, has always having studied legal studies, and this issue has always been a concern of mine. I was devastated with the number that got let out. It was nothing close to those who qualified. So I just wanted to bring that up because it has to be spoke to. Your father should have been out even with that at that time period, and we're still fighting to get him out now, if you will. But go ahead, Queen. Toya, my dad was extremely disappointed with the Obama administration. Like many of us, when Obama was elected, he was ecstatic. He just knew, you know, especially with Obama being from Chicago, a so-called community activist, he just knew, okay, this is it. You know, this is going to be a transformation for myself and for other black men who are, you know, incarcerated and serve these unjust sentences. And so when Obama rolled out, uh, the program, of course, now it escapes my name, uh, my, my memory, but 
there was a program that he rolled out in which there was supposed to be a lot of attorneys volunteering their time to review these petitions for uh, relief. And my father said it was basically a lottery. It was literally a lottery. It was unorganized. I mean, it just was, a, it was really a sham. And he was extremely, extremely disappointed to the point where he actually was depressed after that, after Obama got out of office oh, when he wow. was just um, on his final term. My father was depressed because he felt that basically Obama was just, you know, he was just saying that this thing was working. And, yeah, to your point, Matoya, there were a, thousand, a few thousand or whatever that got out, but that doesn't even begin to touch the the, just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how many inmates were eligible and were not released. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it just it was not effective. It just wasn't. Anybody not else effective. in the family? Re- yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Anybody? Any other family members? Were, oh, familiar with that time? Had that hope? What, what, what did it? What did it feel like? In a sense, when when your when your family member's ticket was not pulled, if, if you even were aware of that. I know Maria was, we were pushing forward at the same time via social media, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, if, if you will. But anybody else just want to give us their insight on that happening or expecting maybe a chance for him to come home and it not happening? Any any thoughts for, the, for any of the rest of you? Go ahead. This is Teresa. I have to say it was devastating um, at the time because when Barack Obama got elected, you know, blacks, we were we were crazy. This was this was history. This was everything. So we were, if I could put it as, we were like in '99, and we got dropped down to zero. So. Uh, anybody that have loved ones in prison, they don't just do the time. It's a piece of you that's always with them, that's always doing the time with them, if you will. And this is 31 years, a very long time. Family members have came, went, deceased, gone. He's he If he do get out today or, you know, in the future, um, He's coming out to a, a lot of people gone. His mother, his only sister, his brothers, his his junior, his son. So it's just it's a it's just a sad situation altogether. It really is. And with that said, we are up against a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. Where all I ask is that you think. Big Sis Media Group is a full-service design agency with tools available to help clients communicate with audiences through visual and digital media. So what exactly does that mean? You need graphic design? Call Big Sis Media. You need web design? Call Big Sis Media. You need audio or video production? Call Big Sis Media. You need a branded strategy for your business? Call Big Sis Media. Damn, they do everything, don't they? Nope, even better. They're professional. Whatever service you need, they do a consultation, send over a contract with a deadline, and meet that deadline. A true one-stop shop for all your digital and media needs, all at an affordable price. What's their website and phone number? BigSysMediaGroup.com, 404-465-4348. Again, that's BigSysMediaGroup.com. Call them at 404-465-4348. 
Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, Black Prisoners, why do we forget about them special guests, Maria Lord and the Maria Lord's family, the Mario Lord's family, Free Mario now is the call to action. Um, y'all have spent um, recent weeks here um, trying to help, in a sense, um, Maria, your father, get out of prison, and uh, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to attach, you know, attach your arms in a letter um, and get involved. So let's let's open that up now for anybody that may feel compelled to assist with bringing clearly. Um, that's what I feel happened in the last 30 minutes is saying, hey, this man has still been a father even under these situations. He's still been a grandfather either under the, even under these circumstances as difficult as it's been. So let's get him home. What does that look like, uh, Maria, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually going to have my sister Marielle tell everyone how they can support the campaign freemarionow.com. Yes, so freemarionow.com is the website. How you can get involved, there are three ways that you can do that. Um, You can start by uh, mailing a letter to the pardon attorney, a letter of support. Uh, you can write your own, or you can. We have one on the website, um, or like template that you can download and sign, and then mail it off. Um, you also can sign the petition uh, on change.org uh, for his release. Um, also, the third thing will be to call and leave a voicemail of support on his immediately immediate release. And um, again, that website is freemarionow.com. And I would like to add really quickly. Please do. Okay, sorry, Montoya. I would like to add really quickly that, so here's the premise of our argument for for those of you who are probably wondering. Um, So the thing is, what we are arguing is that our father would not be serving a life sentence because of all of the changes in the judicial system as it relates to sentencing guidelines. He would not be serving a life sentence if he were convicted today. So basically what we are arguing is the justice system has acknowledged, legislators have acknowledged that they have erred in the way that they sentence people who are accused of the crimes that our father was accused of. Again, all nonviolent, first-time drug offenses. Uh, So what we are arguing is because you all have acknowledged as legislators that you erred um, in creating these unjust sentencing guidelines, he needs to be home. He needs to be home, and that is what we are pushing. It's a sound argument. Um, yeah, yeah, it's to be very clear. You know what I mean? When you start talking about this issue and people get caught into the narratives, did the time, do the crime, pushbacks and arguments, uh, at the end of the day, fairness in the system is what matters. So if a, if a crime today would not warrant that system, then, then it's simple. It's simple. If they figured out we made this error, then it absolutely should be retroactive. In this case, we're obviously focused on um, your father, and it's very necessary. But the reality is this is, too, this is too many family stories. There's too many family stories that got wrapped up during the tough-on crime, give out longer sentences, because we, let's, let's be honest about how it was even sold to us as that period was happening. It was sold to us that they were going to go after the the, the, the the violent people that were destroying and and you know and you know and because we're not we're not acting like some of these neighborhoods did not have issues but the way it was told to us was that we would be locking up the quote unquote 
violent criminals. But what they actually did was lock up whoever they wanted to for profit. And whoever they wanted to could include a Mario Lloyd for a first time nonviolent. It was sold to us. We're going to get the violent criminals out of your neighborhood. It was all parroting all political narratives just to ensure that prisons were filled for profit. We definitely can say that in retrospect. And so if that's the facts, this is an easy bring this man home, in my opinion, and many like him. But if, again, if this resonates for you, here's our chance to affect at least this one family. Uh, but if, you know, we could even talk about, again, y'all grew up in the Chicago area. We still hear about Chicago to this day being used for political mm-hmm. narratives and political purposes, if you will. But if y'all could just even speak to just seeing this be the uh, around the neighborhood, not just your family, but just speaking to how has this affected entire communities firsthand. Can y'all speak to it based on them sweeping up? black boys and black men out of the community and rotating them through the prison system with these unjust and long sentences. You know, tell me about that being from Chicago, if you will. Yeah. So actually I'm going to ask my brother, Marcel, to speak to that as a black male. And um, yeah, Marcel, would you please chime in on that? Yeah. um, Growing up in Chicago, I mean, it's a, it's a battle just, Every day, you know, um, you can have an incident just walking to a local corner store. So, um, with that said, it's um, it's like everything's against you. It's hard growing up in Chicago. Chicago is a rough city, especially the community of Inglewood, so to say, which is one of the rougher parts in Chicago. Um, definitely, as a black male, you are a target. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, and if I could throw this out, because, and this is just, we do candid conversations here, so we're going to go all the way candid with it. And this is something that a lot of people fail to understand. Again, and I'm talking about specifically in our community, these are dialogues with us. And so, um, again, when we were even discussing this issue, people get caught up in the talking points, but never understand, for example, um, and then this is just what my research, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong about it, but from what I understand, Chicago is about roughly the city specifically is about 38% black or whatever. But, but what people don't realize in reference to, and this is always an issue and has to be connected to mass incarceration, is job creations and the opportunity for jobs. Like people typically don't con- connect it. And, and that's intentionally done by the politicians. They don't want you to connect it because they want to make it a moral issue and this person's making a bad decision issues when those things have always been directly related. And the research that I've seen specifically, again, Chicago being highlighted in the news, and, 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 and people don't even realize how that's even misused because they misuse Chicago to actually equate like that's how every black person around the country lives or something. It's crazy as hell that it's even used in that manner. But just bringing some numbers to this thing, the the idea, a lot of people don't realize Chicago has regularly for years and upon years, is a 50% employment rate for young people. The average employment rate, I'm sorry, unemployment rate is 50%. The average unemployment rate around the country is usually about 17%, which sounds high for adults. What I'm talking about you become a working age 
it's usually around 17% to 17% because a lot of parents don't have their children go to work. That's a that's a decent number. But for, for those learning or wanting to get in the workforce and learn skills and services, if there's nothing there, then people will say, well, just don't go to, don't just don't sell drugs, if you will. And again, I was fortunate enough not to grow up in a place like that and have to make this decision. Some of my friends did. But you don't get it when it becomes the only game in town. And again, I'm not saying that that's what everybody does, but this is the context that's always left out of the political talks when it comes to do the crime, do the time, if that makes sense. So, um, Maria, if you will, you know, bring some context or straighten me out if I've got some things wrong, but I think it has to be a part of this conversation when this brother Mariel tells me it's hard. You are the target, and some people will simply say, well, why don't you just leave? It ain't that simple, but go ahead, Queen. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Montoya. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, in the first half, I interviewed my uncle, Charles Lloyd, who was a co-defendant in my father's case. And he talked about the struggles of growing up as a black young boy in Inglewood, Chicago. They witnessed people being shot and killed right in front of their house. My aunt, my one and only aunt on my paternal side of the family, she was on the steps with a friend, and her friend was shot in the foot right in front of her. So these are, I mean, it's a war zone. Um, And the thing that puzzles me is, you know, if the call to action was, look, we're going to be tough on crime, we're going to lock up these criminals, then why hasn't Inglewood, Chicago improved? If my father and my family were such a devastation to the city of Chicago and more specifically Inglewood, why is Inglewood still one of the most dangerous and deadliest cities in America, if not the world? Why is that? What did you achieve by locking up an entire family and one man in particular for the rest of your life? And Montoya, you brought up another good point. I think, you know, obviously this is an election year, right? And so there have been a lot of debates and arguments online about Kamala Harris and her record as a prosecutor and attorney general. You Listen, you can't talk to my family about something like that because there are black women in Chicago right now who were prosecutors on my father's or my family's case. Literally, one of them is now the president of Chicago State University. She is also a member of the Divine Nine, just like Kamala Harris. So don't get it twisted. The other one is the president of a global business organization in Chicago. She is the CEO. She was the CEO and president of the Chicago Urban League. She is also a member of the Divine Nine. So you cannot talk to my family about supporting people who have actually devastated the community by throwing, locking up our black men and throwing away the key. I'm not here to hear any of it because guess what? We are living proof that there are people brown faces and quote-unquote higher places who are causing more devastation and harm through the judicial system than there are out here on the street as drug peddlers or whatever they are. They're causing more harm by using the justice system against black poor people, and that's what this is about. It's a, it's a, it's a punishment against poor black people. So you cannot talk to my family about supporting the Kamala Harris because we, 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 we know all too well and too personally how this goes. We have two black women in powerful positions in Chicago right now who were behind throwing our father in prison for life. We're not here for that argument, period. We're not here for it. I respect the passion. I hope for anybody out there listening, uh, what you just heard is the when you when we bring the politics into it, what you just heard is someone completely understanding their personal interest to politics. 
Like we have these fights and pushbacks without being respectful of an individual story. I tell people all the time, I'm not going to decide to deal with you or not deal with you based on your religion or your politics. We're quite often doing that, getting divided. The reason I don't make it, the reason I won't do it is because I respect that personal. And so I couldn't imagine, like you said, somebody coming up to you trying to explain to your family what's wrong with you for not being with this Kamala, if you will, or Kamala, I'm sorry, Kamala. I always say it wrong. But I'm just saying because it's a personal interest. It hits too close to home. I absolutely understand that. And, 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 I, and I'm saying it now just to challenge our community to get better about how we still work with each other or deal with each other and not get divided over political narratives that typically are not our own. This is y'all's story that has to be respected. I can respect it. If, if, you have a, if you're listening and you have a different political decision, that's fine based on your personal story. But let's not get divided and not realize we need to ensure the bigger issues of coming together as a community, pushing this issue of mass incarceration forward, because we all know how it unfortunately directly hurts all of our families, or too many of our families. I don't, I don't want to exaggerate, but too many of our families have been devastated, and not even outside of the families. When you when you have these young boys who have no role model, and then you look at them as throwaways now, or look at how they're acting now put their father back in their lives and they wouldn't be acting that way. Like, let's put that in perspective. Let's not lose sight of that. Listen to the Mental Dialogue talk show. We'll be right back. All I ask is that you think. Hey, where did you get that hat and t-shirt? I like that. Oh, I got this at MoneyMotivation.com. It's fresh, right? Yes, and I love the message on it, too. You are the hustle, huh? That's what the shirt says. I am the hustle. They embody the entrepreneurial spirit, and what I like the most is more than a brand. It's a lifestyle for those who want to put in the work and expect to have the final things in life. I also follow them on Instagram. Check this post out. If you believe money is the root of all evil, you're using it wrong? Or how about this one? Excuses made zero dollars an hour. I like those. What's their IG? At moneymotivation.co. But do they have any ladies gear? Yes, you're going to love the clothing line they got for the ladies. Matter of fact, pull up their website, moneymotivation.com, and I'm going to get you a few things so we can both look like money. LNG Technology Services, we are your industry leader in aircraft and heavy equipment repair services. In commercial business for over 15 years, LNG technicians have over 150 years of equipment-specific knowledge and are known industry-wide for returning worn-out, broken, and overused ground support equipment back to the user and working better than new conditions. For a service job done right at a value unparalleled in the industry, contact LNG Technology Services at 478-781-781. 4860. Again, for a service job done right, that number is 478 781 
4860. LNG Technologies is a Mental Dialogue Gold member and proud sponsor of the Mental Dialogue community. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. I want to thank my sponsors, Square Business Entertainment. Go find them on YouTube Music. Go find them on all streaming platforms. I also want to thank LNG Technologies as well as MoneyMotivation.com. If you have a product or service you want to get out to the smartest audience in all of radio, please contact me, DM me. On Facebook at Mental Dialogue or call me 404-604-9477. Definitely need your support. If you're an individual listener, you can support us also at mentaldialogue.com and become a supporter or member uh, at the website. We definitely need to keep intelligent radio on the air. So we are fortunate this morning to have on Maria Lord and her family as we're discussing black prisoners. Why do we forget about them? Asking you, all of you out there listening to recognize and learn about Mario Lloyd, his story of why he needs to be home. I think we've made that compelling argument at this point. Um, if you listen to this show, I definitely consider you uh, someone, somewhat of a critical thinker, and we're asking you to participate. Let's make this more than a talk show. Please, freemarionow.com. Go see how you can help in this story. This is one story of many. Uh, but, yes, Maria, thank you so much. Thank your family for, you know, being on and sharing this. And, again, we got this is our last segment, so anybody, any family member that's on the line, if you want to jump in and make a point, you pretty much have a free-for-all at this point. I'm just so glad to be able to share this story for an issue that, as I clearly said, is near and dear to me, so to be able to attach and assist in any way that I can, it means a lot to me. At the end of the day, it means nothing if we can't get him home, in my opinion, and that we need to make that happen. In addition to the compelling argument, Maria, you know, there, you know, let's just share this as well. There, you know, at this point, 31 years in prison, no surprise. There, even, you know, their health, you know, considerations. Uh, you got the COVID-19 people that have even, even the people who have worse records have been let out because of COVID-19 situations within those prisons. So if you could even bring a little bit of that to the table as another compelling reason to support and bring your father home. Go ahead, Queen. Well, we recently learned that our father has stage three kidney disease. He's also a diabetic and COVID-19 has been detected at his unit. Um, so obviously he is highly susceptible to contract or to getting this virus. And if in, the, in fact, if he does, forbid he does, he, it would probably be fatal for him because he already has underlying um, conditions or uh, whatever it is, um, pre-existing, I'm sorry, That's right. pre-existing mm-hmm. um, conditions. So, um, yeah, like you said, Montoya, freemarionow.com is the website. You all, we are, if you believe in what we are advocating for, because we understand that there are some people who do not, they don't support it. Um, we got a message the other day. Some gentleman reached out and said, F. Mario Lloyd, listen, if you don't want to support the movement, that's fine. We understand. This is every we, we respect everybody's decision, but that's not going to stop us from moving forward. And so what I would like to do is ask my siblings and my nieces who are on the call right now, if we could all, again, go down in, in chronological order, please tell the audience, uh, what 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 would what would you like to do or see for our father when he's released? Because I'm speaking it into existence. I believe my father's going to come home. 
and come home alive, that is. So, uh, Teresa, we'll start with you. If you would, just please tell the audience what, you know, what you would like to see when our father comes home. Will he have a place to stay? Just kind of tell them uh, your thoughts. Okay. Uh, What I would like to see is my dad to walk out the federal prison. Um, That has been my dream since I was 11 years old, now 42. Um, That's the, I mean, that will be a complete dream come true. I don't think I would ask for anything else if I was to get that one one thing. Um, Marcel? Did we lose Marcel? Yes. I think I still Okay, there you go. Go ahead, King. What you got? Okay, yeah. I think um it would it would be my dream as well for um just the freedom of my father. I feel like it's not justified for a man to get so much time um for allegedly um selling narcotics. I have a cousin that I grew up with who told me at, at, at that moment, my cousin made me understand because his father had went to, was incarcerated for allegedly murdering someone. And since then he's been home for at least 10 years. But at that moment, you know, when I was younger, my cousin helped me realize the, you know, the situation where a life sentence, you know, um, how extreme it was since his father was, uh, given that amount of time for allegedly murdering someone and my father was given time for allegedly selling narcotics for life. I just don't feel that the crime is uh the alleged crime is just time doesn't fit the crime. It's, no, absolutely. Let me yes, say this real briefly because I had another brother who typically will get on these type of shows. I was just letting him know we were doing this show and this is just it just it resonates with what you just said. And he sent me a message that says, I can't get on this show because he had a family member who uh, received just five years, uh, you know, in a sense for the murdering of the, of, of, of the girlfriend. And just too upset by that light of a sentence, even though this is a family member. Like, like there's nobody out here asking to get less than what they deserve. We're talking about right time for the crime. This man should have been home. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to share that this brother couldn't get on because that situation is it doesn't compare to this. Why is he getting five years and you, your father is still in prison, nonviolent, first-time drug offense? It's crazy. I'm sorry. Anybody else jump in, please. And Montoya, to your point, I just want to add as well, and then we'll go to Mari, uh, Marielle and my nieces. I just want to add that when people look at the case, and we do have a link to the case, if you go to freemarionow.com and under the About section, we do have a link to the case where you can read it yourself. But what's crazy is our father's sentence, most of that came from the money laundering um, accusations. So the, the harsh sentencing was really around the fact, the fact that the IRS could not tax the money that they claimed my father had. Um, that is where he got most of his time. It wasn't for the narcotics because, again, there was never any narcotics retrieved to pin to him in the first place. So um, I just wanted to add that bit. Marielle, would you please chime in? Sure. So what I would like for um, when he when he is released, um, just for him to – I know he always just – 
he's a businessman, so I know he would want to always just have his own business. He already had his own, uh, um, excuse me, was it, because I was, I was a baby, so I know it was some type of, uh, was it a cleaning service, I believe? Y'all got to chime in on that, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so um, I know that he has an entrepreneurial spirit, so um, hopefully he would go back into just having his own, like, and of course making up for lost time and catching up with us. So that would just be the the main things, trying to make up for the lost time. Of course, we'll never get those years back. And him, you know, being respected in the community once again, because a lot of people looked up to him, loved him. Like people, like to this day, I get, oh, my gosh, like your dad was so great. He was so kind. He would give you anything. So, like, he, it's just, you know, it's just unfortunate. But we would like to see him home, and he's coming home. So. Okay. Hey, if I could, Thank just you. because if somebody, I got, I got a caller trying to sneak in, and we don't have that much time. I just want to hear quickly what a caller okay. might want to say in this situation, just real quick, so we don't have that much time. Eight five zero, area code. You're live on the air. Hey, how you doing? Are you trying to get in on this morning? Yeah, we got it. We got, we got it. It's real brief. You could make it real quick. I just want to give anybody that felt compelled to talk. I want to give you an option to say something, but you got to keep it at 30 seconds, if you will. What's your thought? What's your three cents this morning? I just want to thank the Lloyd family because you put, uh, Maria, because you pointed out a very good point earlier in the show about how incarceration not only affects the individual that's physically there, but also incarcerates the family mentally and emotionally. And that was something that I never I just want to thank her for pointing that out today. That was it. All right, thank you for those three cents. That was perfect timing just to know that that's the messaging that you heard. You never thought about it. That's why these shows are worth it, to make it resonate. We have to get involved. Appreciate your three cents. Sorry we had to keep it short this morning, but keep listening in the future. We'll get you on longer in the future. All right, Maria, you can keep running down your family. Uh, you know, what do y'all wish in the, when, when he gets out? What wishes do you have? Go ahead, Queen. Okay, Stacy, go ahead in like 30 seconds. Go ahead, Stacy. Tell them in like 30 seconds if you can. Okay. I think all of us want to see him come home. Um, he missed out on, you know, his kids growing up. You know, he I've graduated high school already. But that doesn't mean he got to miss out on, you know, his younger grandkids too. So that's why I want for him to get out and have memories outside of seeing him in prison. Tasha? Yeah, just to see him home and happy with family the dream come true. And um, I guess I'll go last here. Of course, um, our father, ha- he has a lot of, as, as my siblings have already pointed out, he has a lot of community support. People in the community, community they, they really love our father. Um, I want to thank all of you who have signed the petition and sent your, your letters in the mail to the Office of the Pardon Attorney already. When I checked the online petition last night, we had over 1,500 signatures. So, again, I think that's indicative of the love that my father poured into the community, and that is now being reciprocated in our advocacy for his release, his immediate release. So I would just love to see my father, as Teresa said, and, again, my sibling said, love to see him walk out of federal prison and he has more years behind him than he does in front so i would just love for him to be able to spend the the latter part of his life with his family surrounded by the love that he has given to all of us and the community at large and thank you so much montoya for this for allowing us to be on your platform to share our father and our family story 
I'm, I'm moved. I'm, I thank you for allowing me to do this. Um, again, it's an issue that I've learned about, researched, a legal studies major, so researched it time and time again, over and over again. I feel the same way about getting rid of the death penalty as I do about mass incarceration, uh, but I say all that to say to be this close to it and, and, as you said, to be victorious and get him home will obviously mean, um, uh, you know, a lot. But it blows me away even to hear the story and know that after 31 years, what he did in the community resonated so much that, you know, obviously you as your family wants him home, but the fact that the community still thinks of him that way at 31 years, when we say black prisoners, why do we forget about them? Most people, they can't go away 20 years and not be remembered, and this man is still remembered. Free Mario now. See y'all next Saturday. All I ask is that you think.